to Making Oregon, the podcast that brings you conversations with innovators, makers, and groundbreakers from all across our state. They talk with us about what they're doing to make Oregon the best place we know to create a diverse and prosperous economy. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Terry St. Marie, co-founder of Built Oregon. Today, my guest is Tressa Yellig, founder of Salt, Fire, and Time. Based in Portland, Salt, Fire, and Time has been a producer of traditional healing food products on a community scale since its inception in 2009. They also operate the Broth Bar, Portland's first dedicated bone broth cafe, a collaboration of Tressa and her sister, Katie. The Broth Bar offers high-quality therapeutic bone broths with a variety of add-ons that are gluten-free, paleo-friendly, and are sensitive to the needs of those with food allergies. Tressa also teaches a variety of old-world cooking and nutrition classes around Portland and believes that our personal food choices are beautiful vehicles for change in our communities and the world. Salt, Fire, and Time's ambition is to be a sustainable solution to the growing need to heal our bodies and our food economies through the choices we make in defense of quality foods. So we'll talk about Tressa's personal journey, where her love of food and alternate healing comes from, and how a septic infection cured by organ meats, raw milk, and yoga became the catalyst for a move to the Pacific Northwest, the start of Salt Fire and Time in 2009, and the opening of the broth bar in 2015. So with that, let's get the conversation started. So Tressa, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me on. This is great. So um, I, I've driven by and walked in the broth bar on the east side uh, so many times. And I often wondered, who is the person behind that that's going to start a broth bar? Um, that's pretty unique, isn't it? Very. And, um, of course, there's always a story behind this. And, of course, that's uh, the broth bar is kind of like an offshoot of the main business, which is salt, fire, and time. And I can't go any further. I know our listeners are always good about origin stories and names. So where did salt, fire, and time come from? Oh, man. You know, it's funny. It was a recycled thing from um, when I was working in the Bay Area. I had just finished reading The Omnivore's Dilemma, you know, the Michael Pollan yes, book. Yes, And I remember thinking, all right, let's get down to basics. What What are the basics of making food? All right, what do you need? You need and this was like caveman style. What do you need? You need salt, fire, and time. That's the basics. And I, at the time, I had this vision of starting this food pets business. I wanted to, like, go into people's houses and, like, feed their ferments and make, leave them a loaf of bread and get this whole thing going. So it was like they'd have all these food pets that I would take care of. And that was going to be the name of my business. And the woman who was going to partner me on that thought that was a terrible name. <laughs> so, you know, we put that on the side. And then when we were brainstorming names for this concept, that came up. And I'm like, oh, of course, this is the perfect name for this. Um, Worked out great. So it wow. didn't get lost. There's so much influence on the Omnivore's d- Dilemma, but we'll get to that. But uh, how did, how did, um, so where did this, where did this come from? I, I, I know in reading a little bit about you, um, your, your grandmother and your mother were highly influential on how you think about food. You know, they were, but I wasn't aware of it until after I got into food. It was kind of one of those retro, retrospective, mm. um, resonance moments where, uh, you know, I never anticipated, I didn't grow up thinking I'd get into food. I never thought this was something I would do. I didn't think that, I honestly was too arrogant. I I really thought I was too educated to get into food or something like that. And it's funny how I just kept showing up, you know, through slow foods and things like that. And I was so lucky 
to have this experience, this foundational experience of with my grandmother and her relationship to food, that I really didn't appreciate the the soundtrack that that was laying for you know what I would create in food. Mm-hmm. And so when I you know discovered the whole movement around community supported kitchens and really fell in love with traditional foods, it was such a nostalgic um, love for me because it was so I could I could intellectualize and understand the science and the nuance around that, but I had this sort of deep sentimental memory, mm-hmm. visceral sentimental mm-hmm. memory of how my my body related to this kind of cooking from my childhood. Right, and the, the, the thing that struck me, you said, is her relationship with food. And I think people don't look at food as having a, you know, I'm having a relationship with my food. So it's, it's interesting how you phrase that. What, what does that mean? I'm so glad you brought that up because that, I think, is the key component in this new food movement that we're all part of right now. It's people rediscovering really their relationship to their own bodies Mm. and creating a sense of consequence and connection to the things they put in their mouth versus how they feel on a daily basis and giving people that, that level of, you know, empowering them to take control of their lives because they are just these systems of decisions and consequences based on the foods and circumstances they put themselves into. And training someone to sort of realize that they have power to affect the way they feel on a daily basis almost immediately with the decisions they make around food. It is our relationship. We're constantly interacting with it. And and it changes. It evolves. It's not a checklist kind of thing. We're so much more, you know, one of the things that's coming up now, we used to say you are what you eat. And now it's more you are what you absorb. (laughs) Um, because you can eat things all day long but if your body can't turn them into useful nutrients it's just a waste of everyone's time and energy wow that's a really more precise and interesting (laughs) way to put that isn't that right because we've heard you are what you eat so many times i think people just sort of dismiss it really Mm -hmm. on the most part um but food um it's it's there's a complexity to it but yet a simplicity right of course that i think it sounds like you you had a, you discovered this, and and were there any sort of uh, and you said you 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 really weren't intending to go that direction. You felt more you know like you wanted to be more educated, and so how did how did those finally sort of meet together? What what sort of educational things were you doing at the same time, sort of developing this love of of, of food and the relationship with food? Oh well, it's 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 the classic argument: is it a hobby or a business? Right. You know. <laughs> I feel like every entrepreneur really wrestles with that question. Is it a hobby or a business? Yeah, they and, sure do. And food for me was a passion project that I never, ever thought would turn into, you know, a business. I, you know, you, you expect business to be completely devoid of all sensory information or experience, not to be something pleasurable or to have effects or profound quality of life changes. Um, and when I got involved with food, it was, you know, I had been studying all kinds of literature, surrealism. I really wanted to be a poetry professor. I had this whole vision of being like this creative writing guru. And um, I was going to go to law school. I had, you know, I was going to do all the things you're supposed to do as someone, you know, with plenty of A poetry writing lawyer. That would have been an interesting one. (laughs) I don't think they're that rare. (laughs) Um, And then... um, and then when, you know, grad school didn't work out, I, it was just sort of clandestine how I, I reconnected with some friends in New York where I never thought I'd live and, you know, fell in love with this idea of this cooking for chronic illnesses because I had a passion for nutrition and health, mostly because my mom 
was really, really obsessed with, you know, physiology and health, and she was a nurse. And so I sort of grew up with a level of fluency in uh, that department. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, again, not thinking of it in that way. It was like all this groundwork was laid that I would have access to later, and it wasn't relevant to me as a child. So when I got into that cooking program, I thought, of course, this would be more noble than like a classic culinary program because I was going to heal sick people. And, um, and then I fell into it and realized, oh, my goodness, there is a deeply intellectual and intuitive component to this because there, it was the, the, what they were, were teaching was just one tiny part of reconnecting people to their bodies and food. And, and actually, it was interesting because it meant deactivating or deconstructing the over-intellectualization of our relationship to food because um, traditional foods are not this elevated food culture. It's, it's actually a very basic digestion and absorption-based approach to nutrition that also follows a delicious trajectory that's very lifestyle-oriented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when you look at some of these diets, these highly specialized diets, and I would even go so far as to say some of it's paleo, some of it's keto, it's vegan, it's raw, it's Ayurveda, it's macrobiotics, it's all of that. Yeah. These are all different diet strategies created to teach people how to relate to their health through food. But what's missing in a lot of them is how to adapt it to one person's unique physiology. And so... That was something I thought was so interesting, realizing my own decision to choose to be a little over-academic right. in denying my instinct for food. And that's how we sort of divorced ourselves from this very basic inheritance we have to yeah. just relate to food in our environment as part of our, our relationships to ourselves. We wow. got two in our heads and less in our bodies. So it wasn't too far away from what you were studying. It's like this kind of an interesting merger. <laughs> Of, of intellectual thinking and sort of really getting into the substance of something and mm -hmm. sort of relating it to food. But then you got a, I mean, you had an opportunity, and it, I guess it wasn't a good thing, but you had an opportunity to, I, I, I guess, more or less experiment on yourself because you, you had an illness, uh, I think it was an infection or something you said you, you had? Correct. That you, you, you tried, to, I mean, you use food to some degree to try to get yourself uh, healthier and how 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 influential was that process to just say okay I'm going to try this myself. Well, to be honest, it was more you know I, I call it or think of it as a confluence of opportunity because you know here I was st I, stuck really I couldn't work I couldn't walk I was just stuck. So so it was pretty bad. Uh, yeah, and this idea of relating to food as this hobby you know I was working in restaurants doing a lot of elevated stuff and. And telling myself I was going to become this amazing chef. And so here I am stuck. And I had the skills to cook with, the curiosity to explore this other style of cooking, and a collection of ingredients at my fingertips in, you know, Northern California. So I could experiment and then, you know, as a byproduct of that experiment, discover or stumble upon an opportunity for healing. And what really triggered me in all of this was realizing, A, how my body healed without me even noticing what was going on. It was just, you know, by the time we got to surgery, there was no longer reason to do surgery. And everyone was shocked. And I was one of those lucky new members of the pre-existing, you know, block to insurance. <laughs> no. um, uh, but, uh, but also, how do you create that same hurricane of elements for, for someone who has no relationship no access, no curiosity, no time or opportunity to cook for themselves. 
And that was where I'm like, I cannot believe that a resource like this doesn't already exist in our culture. But I think it's because no one, well, it's still very rare to even talk about food as a healing, right. a necessary, essential healing right. element to the body. Maybe the most essential healing element for the body. But it's not, um, it's not like the cure. Say, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. Food has the greatest effect on genetic expression, on the genetic expression of our, our you know, our mm. DNA, our cells, mm -hmm. our everything. And so if you think about it, everything that happens to our body is a consequence of the decisions we've made compounded through our lives relative to food. So in my circumstances... Wow, that's a statement to unpack there. Right, right. Um, so, but yeah, I think um, it wasn't exclusively food. I think also it was taking a break from work, even if it was a forced break from work, changing my circumstances, maybe making some different decisions about my life. And um, it, it wasn't exclusively the food that changed, but it was the, the food that exclusively changed the, the trajectory of the rest of my life. Um, well, but, it, but you know, when you look at inflection, I mean, infection, inflammation, all the, let's call it conditions sure. that a human body can go through. I mean, I too have been really amazed by by the, the folks that I know uh, that have food issues, that have gotten sick, that how just simple inflammation and is can there cause and effect between food and that. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I've read a lot about like bone broth, which I guess is a good. You know, we need to segue into that eventually. How that <laughs> became became a focus of it, but I think the, that 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 particular food. Uh, was always talked about as something that was really, really good for that. I mean, let's say inflammation and, and body conditions that or the body's just out of sync. And I guess there must have been a point here where you were you had your little um, experimentation on yourself, and you saw how this was working. And and there was the germ of I guess what let's to sort of swing into the the business side of it, the entrepreneurial idea, because you sure. said there was nothing in your mind. There was nobody out there that could present it teach it or sell it, I guess, the three things that you do in that, in that particular way. Sure. So, so how did you then say, okay, I'm going to try to make a business out of this? Um, and I want to say just for the record yeah. that um, I don't want to say that Western medicine doesn't have a place. Right. I just think it has a place as you know, an emergency resource. Outside of that, I think we have the onus to take responsibility through our health, and that's through these lifestyle decisions. And, um, and I think I, I was making some very poor lifestyle <laughs> at the time that I got ill. But uh, but yeah, it was, it was the entrepreneurial opportunity really came from wanting to be a resource, but also wanting to take my life back, make some changes to that lifestyle element for myself, you know, doing something that I loved while interacting with other people and hopefully mitigating suffering and changing some people's, you know, hopes and dreams around their own health journey. Although, you know, uh, I chose the Pacific Northwest because I just loved this part of the country more than anywhere. I'd done a road trip when I was like 17 up here with a buddy of mine, and it just haunted my dreams ever since. Really? And so literally, that's that's how I chose it. <laughs> I've heard that story so many times. I mean, I'm one of those people too. Yes. Um, what is it? It's magic. About mm. this place. You can do anything you want here. I mean, I really feel like there's a tolerance here and just a level of possibility that doesn't exist anywhere else. And you, if you are someone who, like, appreciates and needs nature time, I mean, you've got it all. Right. 
You've got it all, rainforest, ocean, mountain, desert, the whole nine. I mean, everything you want is right here. It just felt like a sustainable place, an inherently sustainable place that was just a little less touched. Maybe not now, but then it did. Sure. And, um, and I just, I loved the community of other business owners here when I came to sort of check it out. Um, I loved that there was a total transparency across the board. There weren't hierarchies of exclusion. And in food, you see that a lot. And, um, and here it just seemed really supportive. Everyone was just trying to experiment with a new concept and see if it could work. And it could because people were open despite the recession and like the difficulties of that. What I loved was, you know, there wasn't exclusively a reliance on your customer base to support the business. You could also rely on other businesses to be co-supportive and not competitive. And this idea that better things just happen in collaboration like, that's where I say it was inspiring to feel that level of possibility in this part of the country when I hadn't felt that in parts of California or New York or the Midwest or other places where I'd worked and cooked as much as I had felt that here. Wow. So you could come here and start a business in the middle of a recession. Correct. This is 2009. <laughs> and say, okay, here I am, salt, fire, and time. Um, off you go. So what was that like? Awful. It was so naive. But I think that's often the gift of being an entrepreneur is not knowing enough to terrify you out of starting. <laughs> that's true. But it was the, was it the joy of the new place and the excitement? Uh, oh, yeah. What sort of kept you going through the awfulness? It was, it was the people, the people I was attracting. I mean, I thought I was going after the busy professional, the seasonal, greenwashed, obsessive, you know, modern person. In food, the, the foodie, the new foodie, that was going right. to be my customer. But what I found I was attracting were people that really needed a level of cleanliness and transparency and trust was huge. Um, people that were attracted to what the style of cooking I was doing were not the busy professionals. They were people that were desperately ill. And, um, and they were people that I didn't have to explain myself to. People that, you know, understood because they'd been seeking these things. Um, and that was that was so surprising. I really thought that Portland was going to be ready for this community-supported kitchen movement. And I think what Portland really was hungry for was um, was a healing foods business. And and it wasn't Portland at large. Well, it is. It, it's, that, it's that invisible underbelly of everyone that's suffering that nobody talks about because we're all, you know, wrapped up in these perceptions of success or illusions of success. And that was even pre, you know, obsessive social media, right. <laughs> you know, development. But in this one category, even Portland with all of its food, food culture hadn't developed, a, you know, a business culture around, um, you know, or this, this, this healing foods movement hadn't quite hit. No. You know, the novelty of fermented foods was still new. Organ meats were weird still. Um, the idea of uh, sprouting or, you know. And those terms get thrown around now like they're just common. Oh, my gosh, yes. I, it's amazing how that just feels like the norm now. Kombucha is the norm. Right. <laughs> and at that time, it was very isolating. So you spent a lot of time, and now this is six years before you opened a retail place. So mm -hmm. in that six years' time, how how, how did the business make money what, what were you doing uh, it didn't <laughs> it didn't it, it, it did just enough and so it changed it took a lot of forms um 
You know, I used to say I didn't miss out on experiences. I just didn't get the experience of a customer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but that's because of those relationships. I feel like the best things in business happen because of the relationships you've developed. And so, you know, my needs were met. I didn't have an elaborate disposable income, but I was able to pay my rent. I was able to keep the business going. I was able to feed myself. I was able to take care of those basics. And um, and my quality of life was such that I was just happy. And that was good. That was enough. So you were thinking, and again, I'm just relating this to the entrepreneurial scenario, right? Oh, I'm going to scale the business. I'm going to get make hundreds of thousands mm -hmm. of dollars. I'm going to open locations. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to raise equity capital. I'm going to go public. I'm going to be on Oprah. I mean, isn't that the dream? It is. And there's almost like this messaging that if you don't want all of those things, there's something wrong with you. Like, why would you miss out on that opportunity? Right. For greatness. Right. Except there's a quality of life piece that's missing yeah. there, too. And I mean, I was broke, and I'm not saying the struggle wasn't very real for me, but like, but there was an opportunity there for, for friends and health and community that I just, I was so hungry for, and I got that. So the quality of your life was improved. You came here, you started doing this. It was hard, sounded like, mm -hmm. but um, you were able to bound out of bed every morning, it sounds like, and, and do what you hey, love. Bounding. Bounding? <laughs> bounding. Not bounding? I don't know if I was quite bounding. Um, but it was It was definitely, it, it, it's a worthwhile pursuit. It felt worthwhile because every day I get the opportunity to hear someone tell me how grateful they are that I exist, how the product I'm making is affecting and improving their life or their children's life or the life of someone they love. And... Um, that's really motivating. And how enormously gratifying. That's what I mean. Is like, that to help other it people? It makes me feel like I have purpose, meaning yes. and purpose yes. beyond just, you know, how much can I can I invest in myself? But yet, and taking the clock forward to a couple of years ago, uh, you said, "Okay, uh, I am going to open up a storefront that sells bone broth." Now, where to? You know, where? Give us a little story about how that came about. That moment was really because my sister and I had been flirting for years with the idea of starting a business together. Um, we're very close. She's my favorite human. I really just can't get enough of spending time with my sister. And and we had, like, the idea of trying to do something that would afford us both a livelihood was just a little, it was extremely romantic, I'm not going to lie. It really was. Um and she was miserable in her corporate job, even though she was making oodles of cash and, and you know, had all the ability to do all the things that she never had the time to do, all those things. Now, was she here? No, she was in California. Okay. Um, and so she, her health had taken a, a nosedive, and I really just wanted her close. And so we sort of offered out the business as an opportunity for hey, let's, let's see if we can adjust your quality of life piece too. And then maybe you bring some of these corporate skills to what, what I've been doing and let's see if we can really grow it and take this into the mainstream, which is, you know, just something you're like, let's just see what happens. Like, why not? We can do it. And that moment had arrived because suddenly this product, Bone Broth, which had been foundational for me for many, many years, um, you know, had its moment in the sun where Kobe Bryant came out, what, three Januarys ago and said something like bone broth was almost exclusively like responsible for his muscle recovery. And now everybody wanted to talk about bone broth. And um, which was wonderful because it really did deserve some celebrity. 
bone broth is foundational. Bone broth is the beginning of every single healing journey we participate in. It really, but it's almost, it's too complex and it's too simple. And so it gets sort of relegated to this like- Sure, but can you, can you sort of break it down for a listener who might not really necessarily understand what it is? Sure, the, the 30 second, I guess, version of this is that uh, bone broth is an amazing collection of nutrients that work to optimize digestion and absorption. And by doing that, the body is actually able sometimes for the first time to actually use food that it takes in as medicine. And so it's interesting to think you might be eating the most beautiful, organic, well-sourced food, but if your body cannot digest and absorb that, it's a way you, you're starving. You're starving to death, spending a lot of money, starving to death, and you're not actually healing or nourishing anything. So it's kind of a, um, what's the right word to put it? A, not, I would say conditioner. It, it, it's the missing link. It's in, a missing link to proper digestion and absorption? Yes, yeah, the missing link to food is medicine. Wow. Is digestion, which every single person struggles with optimal digestion and absorption um, because of stress, because of environmental factors, right. because of genetic factors, all kinds of things. And what bone broth does is allow the body to divert energy it would otherwise spend on digestion or managing stressful environmental factors to specifically healing. And it does that first by normalizing stomach acid, and which is the first. So it's like the top pearl in that string of pearls that just, if that one happens correctly, there's a much better chance that the rest will fall in line. And um, But also because it doesn't, um, it's extremely soothing for the nervous system because so much of our nervous system begins in our gut our neurotransmitters, you know, all of that stuff. And so all of these tears that might have developed in our intestinal tract have an opportunity to heal. Is that what they commonly call the leaky gut? Leaky gut, yeah, which most people talk about as a dismissible issue, but it's a, it's the beginning of autoimmune. It's the beginning of so much chronic dysfunction that um, people don't, people have a hard time in every aspect of, I think, our medical industry. And I call it an industry because it has become sort of that where people aren't really treated like whole creatures anymore. And um, and they're they're reduced to a, a, a list of a checklist of symptoms and protocols. And then but quality of life is completely ignored. Is it hard for people to believe oh, yeah. that something that simple could be so profoundly helpful sure. to them? And it's not a pill? Right, and it's not something I go to a drugstore to buy, or why isn't this regulated? Or literally, even right, yeah, and, or um, or some you know stupendous health food market or something. Yeah, um, it hasn't really been commercially sold. I mean, obviously, people were talking about it and writing about it and blogging about it, and you were. Mm-hmm. So, what possessed you to say, you know, I'm going to sell this stuff. I'm just going to make it, put it in a store, and sell it. I mean, aside from the the, the desire to work with your sister. I mean, there's some business person in you that said, you know, there's a market for this. There is. And well, it was, it was time. We wanted, a, we wanted to increase accessibility. Um, grocery was a little beyond where we were at that point. Um, and so it was like, all right, how do we do this? We need to make it social. We need to make it public. We need to make it hip and accessible to the optimal wellness, everyday busy professional person who is not, again, going to take the time to um, to put these simple elements together to make a healing food a lifestyle. And that's what we decided. It was time to make bone broth a lifestyle because it was just, it is the first toe you dip into the sea of relationship to food. Wow. 
And you opened it on the east side yep. in 2015. Mm-hmm. And just to describe it to people, it's not a large place. Oh, it's a tiny footprint. Our whole point was to just make, treat it like a coffee shop that served bone broth. That was our intention. We wanted quick, grab and go, make it delicious, make it easy, and um, and then get on with your day. Because that's what it's supposed to be. It's 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 nutrition first aid. And how big is the serving that you you know the the when you say I want a broth? How, how much is how much? We have how, two sizes. Uh-huh. Uh, one is eight ounces and one is sixteen ounces. And then a whole menu of add-ins that you can put in there. But it's not like your average you know put in some vegetables and a slush of cream. You know everything on our menu is again supposed to support that idea of health. And so you know we have organ meats and turmeric and ginger. And again, it's giving people that chance to experiment with how these elements interact in their body. And they, again, have now a visceral experience of how they're taking control of their day. So how's the reception been? How How is it going over there? You know, it's been great. It really has been great. I mean, don't get me wrong. We still get a, a lot of sort of tourists and gawkers and you know, there some people who's, who are kind of like, you can't be serious. What is this thing? But I would say 90% of the people that come are that very grateful, excited, I am so glad this exists. It's changing my life. Now I get to be social in the food scene in Portland too, where otherwise it was prohibitive because of all of these food food allergies or health problems. We, we've given a, a, these people that didn't have a way of participating in that, that scene a place to hang out. Well, you know, in a way you're solving a hidden problem that needed to be solved where mm-hmm. a lot of people, and this is a topic that's come up in a lot of instances and in, in even in my entrepreneurial world about uh, people that, that, and there's more and more of this, and we mm-hmm. can talk about that probably for hours, about <laughs> why so many people now have these food intolerances and allergies and, and they can't go to restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, it's a, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful restaurant food town, and they mm-hmm. can't go to any of these places because of their food allergies. And the restaurants are annoyed because of all the requests that are being made, and it's just people wanting to participate, you know? Right. And so to come up with something so simple, it sounds like a concept that if you wanted to, um, I mean, you're on, you're sort of writing, there's a, you, you sort of merge with this wave. I think there is a wave. So, so let's think three or four or five years out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you want to go with this? Well, I really think this is sort of the future of, of food. And um, I think Katie and I have a hope of trying to grow this business a little bit. Um, we you know, will probably try to help other people do something similar through licensing the concept. Or you know, we're going to try to get into grocery, too. Um, I think we'll open a few more stores. Um, I know. I Just the thing I told you we weren't going to do, except <laughs> now it is kind of fun. Oh. Now there's this different train of like, oh, my gosh, like I've never done this before. I've never grown a business before. Like this is really interesting getting some support from people in the community and saying, can we scale without compromising quality of life, quality in sourcing, quality in processing? You know, can we stay this high integrity concept and grow? And the truth is, if we can't, we won't. But right. if we can, right. why not try? Because now we've paved the way for sure. that future food concept. Now, and do you still make, or who makes the bone broth? We have a kitchen out by the airport, and um, you know we have a, a wonderful staff of people. We still make it, um, you know, very slow, held at a low temperature. We don't use pressure cookers. We don't rush the process. Like we have an army of. This kettles. is like a date, like 
24 to 36 hours, you... 72, actually. 72? <laughs> yep. And, oh, that's um, a low temperature. It must be pretty low temperature then. We, yeah, we're keeping it under, I call it a shiver. We keep it under a simmer. <laughs> <laughs> a shiver. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, it stays under 200 degrees. And, um, and what that does is it really allows us to draw all of that nutrient out of the bone into solution. Right. And we make a very dense product. Um, unique, unique in the sense that it is so unprocessed. I think we are the only company in the country right now making bone broth that way. And do you think you can make lots of it in a, let's say, a multiple retail environment or, and then you're wholesaling it well, that's, to the grocery store? That's the clever part is yeah. that I, I think we will expand as much as we can and then we'll have to have other spots. I don't think we can expand limitlessly in one region with one kitchen. Inevitably, there's a diversity to our survival that will include collaboration. We're going to have to bring in other regions, move to other regions, bring in other businesses. I mean, the relationships we have to farmers, ranchers, ranchers, you know, all of like the packaging people, the other ingredient manufacturers, like we, I love and they love seeing how we're, we're adding relevance to each other's lives as we grow and scale. And that's one of those like rising tide sort of right. fun things to watch. Sure. That I take a lot of pride in, and I know Katie does too. Wow! So, so you're looking, uh, and listeners, you can't see this, but I can. Bliss, <laughs> blissfully looking into the future, which is wonderful. Um, but now you've had, um, you know, six years of this, or no, it's 2017, Terry. Eight years <laughs> of this behind you. Um, I always ask this question. Um, and I'll ask it of you. I mean, is there one piece of advice that you can give to an entrepreneur, particularly somebody that's in the food business or a product business, um, th that you learned during your journey that you can pass along to others? Um, yeah, I do not think that this, there's, I think there's this mythology we tell entrepreneurs that, you know, if you are, if you can be more hardworking and more ingenuitive, then you will always survive. And I really don't believe that there is any guarantee for those things. Um, I think naivety is your best asset <laughs> because that cold splash of water comes way too fast. So I think, yeah, what I would tell people is um, the mythology of self-sacrifice is just that, and it's probably poison for your business. Wow. Well, I do like the, the ignorance is bliss uh, <laughs> point of view, and I've heard that so many times yeah, as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, it, it's, it creates a sort of a fearlessness because mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I, and, I, I, and I, I, I know people throw that out casually, but I think there's a lot of barriers that come up. Um, you know, the mind can be a cruel thing in terms of creating all these scenarios, but if you don't know these scenarios exist, it gives you freedom. I agree 100%. Well, you're um, living proof of that. Right. We're doing all right. Yes, you're doing all right. Well, you know, we just run out of time already. It's all good. But, uh, Tressa, it was really good to talk to you. And, Me too. Thank um, you. We'll, we'll, we'll give information about your two websites um, uh, on, our, on our site and at the outro to this. And um, I hope people, if you're in Portland, you drop by the store on the east side on, um, on 6th. And how often are you there? I'm very rarely in the store, you know, almost every day, but never regularly. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, maybe, maybe, folks, you can get lucky and see Tressa in the store and say hello 
and, and taste some of the bone broth, I'm certainly going to do it. Um, and thanks, Tressa, for joining us today. Thank you very, very much. Our special thanks today to Tressa Yellig of Salt, Fire, and Time. You can find Tressa online at saltfireandtime.com. That's S-A-L-T-F-I-R-E-A-N-D-T-I-M-E.com and at brothbarsft.com. And you can visit the Broth Bar in Portland at 115 Northeast 6th Avenue. Thanks again for listening to Making Oregon, a production of Built Oregon, the nonprofit media company that tells stories to connect, instigating support entrepreneurs all across the state. Find out more about our online magazine, all of our podcasts and live events by visiting builtoregon.com. Once again, I'm your host, Terry St. Marie. Our engineer is Jamie Colazzo, and our producer is Davia Larson. We'll be back soon with more makers, doers, and innovators sharing stories of how they are making Oregon. Oregon.